Hey, happy Easter, everybody. So glad that you decided to spend Easter um, with us. Whether you're here and you're all about Easter, you're ready to celebrate, or whether you got dragged here, somebody made you come, or you're staying with somebody this week, and they're like, well, we go to church on Sunday, so you're coming with us. Regardless of why you're here, glad that you are here to celebrate with us. Hey, I got the um, opportunity to go to Israel last summer, um, and uh, one of my bucket list items checked off the list there. And uh, one of the things I was most interested or most excited about seeing uh, was the garden tomb, the, the, one of the, the tomb where they believe that Jesus uh, was laid. And they're very, very clear. They're not positively sure where that is, but there's a couple spots, or there's a couple places that they, uh, that they believe that happened. So um, while I was walking towards it, we, we were there, and I pulled out my phone, and I just took a picture. It's not a great picture, uh, but this is, this is what I saw, the, the entrance or the, the door that goes inside the tomb. And we actually got to go inside, and uh, it's, it's about 15 feet by 15 feet, not very big. I had to hunch over the entire time because the ceiling's kind of low. It's July in Israel, so it was hot. It was like an oven in there. Um, but the, the, the thing, I'm, I'm standing there. You can't really get into the area where um, they, they, they believe Jesus' body was laid because it's kind of fenced off. And I'm standing in there in what some people believe to be the tomb where they laid Jesus' body. It's the place, possibly, where the Father on Sunday morning said, Son, wake up. And I, I felt nothing. I don't know what I was expecting to feel, but I'm standing there thinking, I'm a pastor, and I got nothing going on inside. Like I, I felt nothing, and part of that was because it was, it was just another stop, you know, on, on a, a day of a whole bunch of stops, and it was hot out, and, you know, it felt a little bit, I don't know, commercialized again. I don't know what I was expecting. It just, it just felt like a tourist stop. To me, but, but it reminded me, or it kind of made me think about what I want us to think about today. Um, this, this idea of the resurrection being this romanticized, like, epic story. Like, if you grew up in Sunday school, do you remember the flannel graph stuff that you used to see? Like, for some reason in my mind, I always grew up thinking that the resurrection was this epic thing that Jesus, you know, comes out of the tomb, he's dressed in white, and there's stage lighting on his face, and he pauses you know, with one foot in and one foot out, Jesus pauses for just a minute for the first century Israeli paparazzi to take a picture of him while he's getting ready to come out, you know? And it's just this, this epic, overly romanticized thing. And I'm standing in the tomb and, and, and I'm thinking, I don't feel that. I don't get that. But what I did feel, what I did think was this actually happened. Like this, this, it was more factual to me than emotional. And, and I just want us to think about this for, for just a couple of minutes today, that this, this idea that Easter isn't religious myth. In fact, I would make the case that there's nothing religious about Easter at all. But, but Easter isn't religious myth because Easter is about something that happened. It's about an event in history that changed history. And if you listen carefully, especially like on the internet, there's this growing chorus of people that say, well, you know, um, I'll give you that Jesus was a real person. There's very few 
historians, there's very few theologians, there's even very few atheists today who doubt that there was a first century rabbi named Jesus. There's enough extra biblical or sources outside of the Bible that believe there was a first century rabbi named Jesus who was crucified outside of Jerusalem. And, and, and so, okay, I'll give you that, but he died and came back to life, really? And, and one of the angles that's become very, very popular over the last 20 years goes something like this. Well, actually, there are multiple ancient mythologies with heroic figures who die and come back to life. There's, there's three in particular. Um, there's Horus, there's Mithras, there's Dionysius. Dionysius was Greek, um, Mithras was Roman, and Horus was Egyptian. And because we live in a world where anybody and everybody can, can post a blog or create a video and put it online and anybody and everybody will believe it, this theory has kind of gained some traction over the last 20 years that Christians just borrowed from these ancient mythologies and kind of laid the story over Jesus to, to gain a following to continue to espouse these teachings of Jesus, that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It was just a popular, you know, mythological story that people attributed to Jesus. Some of you maybe have a coworker or a friend or, or maybe even a family member who's, who's kind of gone down this rabbit trail. And, and the rabbit trail goes like this. That the story of Jesus isn't unique because Horus, Mithras, and Dionysus, they all had 12 disciples. And in ancient accounts, they kind of vary, but Jesus wasn't the only one born of a virgin on December 25th. And in addition to that, Christians talk about the wise men visiting Jesus. Well, in all these mythologies, there's three magi visiting the birthplace after following a star in the east. And that's not really unique to Christianity. And then on top of that, the whole idea about Jesus being crucified and after three days rose again, well, that was part of the ancient mythologies too. So the, the early Christians just took this ancient mythology, credited it to Jesus, and so they could have you know, some credibility in the ancient world. And okay, so let's, let's look at these, all right? Mark Clark in his book, The Problem of God, actually goes through all three of these. We only have time to go through one. We're going to go through the oldest one, the Egyptian myth of Horus, okay? And if you Google this, which you're more than free to do, there's all kinds of information out there that will, will say that Horus had 12 disciples. But when you look at the original sources, he actually only had four and maybe 16 like, like nobody has found anything in the primary sources or the hieroglyphs that say Horus had 12 disciples. And when you press the people who say that he did, they can't generate any kind of primary source to confirm it, which is what scholarship requires. So there's also this thought that he was born of a virgin on December 25th. Well, we don't really need to get into the particulars of that. Um, and I don't want to ruin your Easter and I really don't want to ruin your Christmas. But no, like, no credible historian or theologian believes Jesus was born on December 25th. Like, that's just when we celebrate his birth. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Jesus was born on December 25th. So you can kind of get rid of that. What about the virgin birth part? Well, in the Horus myth, it's a really weird story that I don't really want to get into in public because there are children here. But if you want to go home and Google it when we're done feel free. Do it after lunch because it's a little gross, okay? But the parallel between the, the birth of Horus and the Christian belief or the Christian doctrine of the virgin birth is a stretch at best, okay? So 
You, you, you go home and do that, but the comparison of the virgin birth doesn't really pan out. But what about, what about the three magi you know, visiting the birthplace after following a star in the east? Well, again, if you've been around at Christmas, you've heard me say this. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that there were three magi that visited the birthplace. It's a popular misconception because there were how many gifts? Three. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So nowhere does the scripture talk about kings or magi or wise men. We three kings of Orient are not in the Bible. They're just not there. And then, you know, um, if you ask Egyptian historians, they'll tell you that this piece of the Horus myth, it wasn't added until the 19th century. It wasn't even a part of the original myth. And then what about being crucified and after three days rising from the dead? Well, again, in the Egyptian myth, Horus never dies. So that doesn't work, right? Like there's no parallel between his death and resurrection and Jesus' death and resurrection. So the next time you hear somebody say, well, you know, the early Christians just borrowed from ancient mythologies, you can look at them and very kindly say, where'd you hear that? Like, where's the source for that? And no, Wikipedia and YouTube don't count. It's got to be as close to the primary source as possible for it to work. This is why I've said For the last six weeks, you have to follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. You follow where the evidence goes, not where you want it to go, not where somebody says it goes. If you're going to talk about truth, if you're going to talk about events that happened in the past, you got to follow where the evidence leads, not where you hope it leads. But even then, what if you follow the evidence and there are some similarities? What if there are some parallels to the stories and all of these other places and to the story of the resurrection. Well, the first thing I'd say is that similarities don't mean a story is false. Similarities don't automatically mean a story is false. Let me give you an example from a little bit more modern um, day and age. Um, There are a lot of similarities between the story, the life and the death of Abraham Lincoln and the life and death of John F. Kennedy. Some of you may have seen this before, but just, just... Just look at this. Both were concerned with civil rights. Both were elected to Congress in 46, Lincoln in 1846, Kennedy in 1946. Lincoln was elected president in 1860, Kennedy in 1960. Both were killed on a Friday before a major holiday. Both were shot in the presence of their wives and another couple, and both were shot from behind in the head. But wait, there's more. Lincoln was shot in the Ford Theater, Box 7. Kennedy was shot in Car 7 of the Dallas Motorcade. Both were pronounced dead in a location with the letters PH, Lincoln and Peterson House, Kennedy and Parkland Hospital. The successors of both were named Johnson. Andrew Johnson was born in 1808. Lyndon Johnson was born in 1908. John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Lincoln, was born in 1839. Lee Harvey Oswald, who who assassinated Kennedy, was born in 1939. But there's more. Both assassins were privates in the military. Booth fled from a theater to a library, while Oswald fled from a library to a theater. Both assassins were taken into custody by a police officer named Baker. Last but not least, Lincoln was shot in the Ford Theater. Kennedy was shot in a Ford car. The model of the Ford, Lincoln. (laughs) What? What do you do with that? Does that mean the stories are false? Does that mean it didn't really happen? There's just too many similarities. No. It just so happens that there's that many similarities. 
Just so happens that there's that kind of parallels. The parallels don't, don't mean that it didn't happen. When it comes to history, when it comes to events that have happened in the past, check your sources and then follow where the evidence leads. So I want to go to one of the original sources that we have for the resurrection. We actually have four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're just going to look at one of them. These come from ancient manuscripts. We looked at this just a couple weeks ago. This isn't just what Christians think. Historians will tell you that what we're about to read is historically verifiable. Okay? It's an account of Jesus' resurrection written by a physician. He was a doctor named Luke. He wrote this down, and then it eventually made it into what we know of as the New Testament about 300 years later. And so Matthew 24, or Luke 24, if you want to follow along in your Bible or mobile device, we'll throw these verses up on the screen as well. But I want you to listen, not just to the story. I want you to listen to how, Paul t- or how Luke tells the story, okay? The, how, how, how he, not necessarily what happened, but how the story was told. Here we go, Luke 24, verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Implication, they expected to find the body of the Lord Jesus. On Friday night, they didn't have enough time to to complete the preparation of the body because Friday night at, at sundown is when the Jewish Sabbath starts. The earliest they can do it, Sunday morning. So they show up as early as they possibly can, but nobody expected Nobody. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them in their fright. The women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, this is so good, why do you look for the living among the dead? And I think they had a smirk on their face when they said that. He is not here. He has risen. Remember, because they obviously didn't. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Took a little reminder from angels. Little heavenly post-it note, right? When they came back from the tomb... They told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. Jesus originally had 12 disciples. Now there's 11 because the gospels tell us after Judas betrays Jesus, he goes out and he commits suicide. So one less disciple at this point. Who was it? It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the others with with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Fellas. Some things just don't change, do they? (laughs) Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. If you're going to make up a story, like some people say that the early Christians did, so they could get more followers and they could start a movement, this isn't the way to do it. This is actually a terrible story based on first century standards. First of all, 2,000 years ago, women had no rights. Equality wasn't even a part of the conversation. In fact, women, ladies, you couldn't even testify in court. So if you're going to make up a story about Jesus coming back from the dead, 
Why put the first testimony in the mouth of women? If you're going to make up a story, you know what you do? You send the men to the tomb, and they stand in it, and they go, told you. I called it. I've been telling you guys all along, he's coming back on the third day. (laughs) So what happened? What are the men doing? They're like, huh. They're confused. They're dumbfounded. They just, they, they, they can't get it. They don't believe the women. Even Peter, after walking away from an empty tomb, goes, I don't, what, what happened? This isn't the way to tell the story. It's not the way to tell the story if you want to make yourself, as one of the original followers of Jesus, look good. If you're trying to attract a crowd, if you're trying to build a movement, this is not how you tell the story. In fact, just read all the Gospels. The disciples constantly look like fumbling, bumbling idiots. They're constantly doing the wrong thing, constantly asking the wrong question. They argued about who gets to sit at the right hand of the Father. What? They're just, it's so sophomoric. <laughs> so if you're trying to inspire the next generation of Jesus followers, this isn't the way you tell the story unless it's what actually happened. If, if he actually died and they actually expected him to stay dead, if the women actually went to the tomb expecting to find the body, And if they actually didn't and they actually went back and told the guys he's not there and then if Peter actually went and he was still confused, that's not how you write the story. Unless it's what actually happened. Okay. Small group of people 2,000 years ago saw a guy crucified and they believed he came back from the dead. We could leave it right there, but there's one more thing. Because I don't believe the resurrection is just historical. It is historical. But I don't believe it's just historical. I also believe it's personal. And here's why I say that. Whether you know it or not, whether you walk through those doors believing it or not, there's a part of you that wants this story to be true. I'd say it like this. Your heart yearns for what the resurrection affirms. Just, just, pick, just pick one thing. One thing, let's, let's go global. Pick one thing that's a really, really big issue that you want to see made right. Human rights, racism, economic equality, sex trafficking, you know, unity and diversity, justice for the marginalized and oppressed. Just pick one issue and drill down really, really deep. All of those so-called self-evident beliefs stem from a first century rabbi who was crucified and whose resurrection started the movement that brought us all those things. What about personally? Some of you, you want to see your grandma again. You want to see your spouse again. You want to see your son Somebody has died in your life and you want to see them again. The resurrection affirms that death doesn't get the last word. You want hope. You yearn for hope, for peace, for forgiveness. The resurrection affirms that all of those things are available right now. 
You, you, want, you want evil and brokenness to completely be vanished from the face of this earth. The resurrection affirms that there's coming a day when all evil and brokenness will be vanished from the face of this earth. The cross, 2,000 years ago, the cross was an element of torture. The Romans perfected torture on the cross. We wear it around our neck today. <laughs> we put them on our wall at home. That's like wearing an electric chair around your neck. Jesus took an element of torture and turned it into life. The resurrection affirms what your heart yearns for, whatever, you, you drill down real deep. Your heart yearns for what the resurrection affirms. And listen, you don't have to take my word for it. There's eight people going public in, through baptism this week. Ask them. They all have their own story, Right? It's a different story. They all got here from different ways and different places, but all of them will say, I'm joining the long line of people who for centuries have decided to put their trust in Jesus. Ask them. So here's, here's what I came to ask this morning. Does anybody yearn for what the resurrection affirms? Does anybody yearn for that? And some of you, you've already answered that question. Today is about celebration and remembering and joy and triumph and worship and I guess punching Satan in the face, which we're going to do a little bit more here in a second, okay? It's all good. Some of you, like you need to investigate this. You need to, like, you're like me, you need to see evidence. You need to stop listening to secondhand information on YouTube and Reddit and do the research yourself. Stop borrowing from somebody else's faith. Stop borrowing from your parents' faith, from your grandparents' faith, and make it your own. And then others of you, you know. <laughs> like, you know. You know. You, you don't need any more evidence. You've been putting this off long enough. You've been trying to ignore that nudge in your heart, that little... <clears throat> You've distracted yourself with the bottle with pills, with relationships. You just distracted yourself with success, with work, with whatever it is. But you know. You know, and you need to stop running. You need to stop ignoring that nudge. Because here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus is graciously relentless. He's going to keep running after you. He's not going to let you ignore it. He's going to keep on inviting you to follow him. And today is a good day because it's the only day you got. Right now, it's the only day you got. It's a good day to stop running, to stop ignoring, to stop distracting yourself and open your heart and trust that what he did was actually for you. The cross was actually for you. The cross was for us. I believe he did that for you. And I just want to give you an opportunity to transfer your trust from whatever you're trusting in, to transfer your confidence from whatever your confidence is in to what Jesus did for you. I honestly believe it was for you. Your heart yearns for grace, for love, for acceptance, for forgiveness. Your heart longs for home. And Jesus is home. It's what you'll find in Jesus. And if you're in that place today, I just want to lead you in a prayer. It's not a magic prayer. The words don't save you. The prayer is just a way 
to express the attitude, the posture of your heart. It's a way to express your desire to trust Jesus, the living Savior, the path back to God. And I just want to give you an opportunity to do that today. So let's pray. And, and, and you, can, you can do this right where you're seated, right where you're at, or if you're watching online, you can pray. You, you, tell, you tell God something like this, Lord Jesus, I believe you beat sin and death for me. And I've been so distracted by success, by money, by family, by whatever. And I realize what I've been looking for all along is you. So right here and right now, I admit I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I've fallen short of your standard. I've, I've replaced you with all the wrong things. And I ask for your grace, for your forgiveness to flood into my life. I'm gonna make you the forgiver, the leader, the king of my life. I surrender to you. And from this day forward, with all of my questions, with all of my doubts, with all of my baggage, I give you my life. Father, I want to celebrate. We want to celebrate with anybody and everybody who sincerely prayed that today. We know <clears throat> you're celebrating right now. Heaven is celebrating right now. And God, you know, we can't do this alone. We have to have people with us to do this journey. So would you give them the courage to speak up, to let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And let the people around them, their family, their friends, let us know the decision that they've made here today. And then would you give your church, the people around them, the wisdom, the courage to disciple them, to help them take the next step in their faith journey. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done in history. We thank you for what you've done today. We thank you for your resurrection. It affirms so many things that we yearn for, that we long for, that we want to see come to pass. We trust you with all of these things. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.